0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Well, as I mentioned in the reading, if you're at all familiar with the story of Joseph, this is a pretty unique feature from his life to focus on in his, like this is his verse moment in Hebrews 11. Like I almost wonder if he's watching from the heaven's gates, looking on at what the author's writing, and he's like, oh, he's getting to my section, by faith Joseph, and there's just so much to the story of Joseph, survived, you know, being thrown into a pit, gets sold into slavery, he he, uh, flees from some sketchy woman trying to entrap him, remember that? We'll get there. He finds himself in prison for over two years, forgotten, perseveres in faith, gets promoted to be the leader of the free world. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of something and then told everyone what to do with his bones. Like, that's the feature that we get of Joseph's faith. And, you know, at a, at a first glance, it might not look significant, but I want to unpack this a little bit to show what's going on here. Um, and just to kind of take a step back, each week what we're doing is trying to focus on the different verbs of faith that these uh, characters display. And so this morning, it kind of sounds like I'm cheating and defining a word with the, with the word, but today we're going to talk about how Joseph believed God by faith. You need faith to believe God. Joseph believed God By faith. You know, each week we've been seeing these different characteristics of faith displayed. And what Hebrews wants us to see about the faith of Joseph is it's the kind of faith, listen again, that believes what God has said. So simple, right? God has said it, but do we actually believe it? It's one thing to believe in God. I believe in God. It's a whole other thing to believe God when he's spoken. And Joseph models the kind of faith that doesn't just believe in God generally, but takes God's word at face value and takes it as true and lives accordingly. Where do we see Joseph believing God? Well, we see him believing God on his deathbed. We looked at Jacob two weeks ago displaying the same kind of faith that doesn't just start by faith, but ends in faith. It's finish line faith. Uh, Even on his deathbed, Jacob believed. And it's the same is true of Joseph, I don't know what the intent was, but in verse 21, when it's talking about uh, Jacob, it says the same thing that by faith Jacob, when he was dying, it uses, it uses the same phrase for him. In the Greek, it's a whole different expression. The Greek word used for Jacob's death is like he's dying, like it's happening. Like it could literally be translated by faith Jacob, when he was becoming a corpse. Like that's literally how it could be translated. The Greek word has to do with drowning. So he's like, I'm like, here's my wishes. You know, like that's him, okay? But Joseph, the same phrase is used when he was dying, but it's not the same Greek word that describes, like, death is happening. The idea here in the Greek speaks of Joseph is just coming to the end of his race. He sees the finish line ahead. He's on, you know, he's in the fourth quarter and there's no overtime, okay? He he sees his life wrapping up. He sees that the end is near for him. You know, we don't know how much time he had left, but his, his time was coming, And here is what Joseph did in his faith when he saw the finish line ahead of him. He did two things, and they both go together. First thing he did was he made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. Now, what's going on here? At this point in time, in the book of Genesis chapter 50, all of Israel, his children and grandchildren are in Egypt, a foreign land, not the promised land that God promised to give Abraham and his descendants, but in Egypt, a foreign secular land, and they are there because of a famine and they're all in need, and that's the only source of food and nourishment is there in Egypt, and they've been there sort of living off of the goods of the land for their survival. Joseph, when he's dying, he makes mention of the fact that this is such an important thing to by the way, have even like a friend to tell you. Where you are right now is not where you will always be. You will not always be where you are right now. You ever just got that simple encouragement from someone, by the way? You're like sometimes you feel like where you're at is your final destination. And you just need a friend sometimes to come and say, you know, this is a layover, okay? This is a temporary stopping point between what God has said to you and where God is bringing you. According to the flesh, it seemed like this was the end. There they are stuck in Egypt. But Joseph makes mention of the departure. There's an exodus coming. God is going to, there's a whole book in the Bible called Exodus, in light of what he's saying here. God is going to bring his people out of Egypt into his promised future, into a promised land. This is Joseph on his deathbed believing God. (laughs) He's believing what God has said. So much so, I love this, that he gives special instructions concerning his, you know, his bones. Just normal stuff that we all do in common conversation, right? Just giving instructions about his bones. Now, in that culture, the burial process, the, the memorial process was an extremely sacred thing. And for Joseph here, he is giving special instructions, particularly telling them, don't bury me in Egypt. I love that. I want you to keep my bones in a coffin above ground. And I don't want you to bury these bones until we get to where I believe God is going to take us, the promised land. This is pretty interesting, isn't it? Like this is what he does by faith. But you can see the faith, right? You can see the faith in Joseph saying, I'm so confident that this is not our final destination that I want you to take good care of my bones after I die and bring them with you into the promised land, not if, but when God leads us there. That's pretty cool to think about. Now, um, as interesting as that sounds, when you read the book of Exodus, you see this is exactly what they did. Years later, we're going to study Moses in the weeks to come. Moses is this this deliverer that God raises up to deliver uh, Israel from Egypt. And the Bible tells us that Moses, when they're going the way of the Red Sea, Prince of Egypt moment, epic, waters part, tsunami, big barrels, before that happens, it tells us, that Moses took the bones of Joseph. This is Exodus chapter 13. He took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, this is quoting Joseph, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Now this is sort of weird and ancient, but cool all at the same time. Okay? Joseph's bones are carried by Israel all the way into the book of Joshua when they get to this place called Shechem, which is actually where Joseph's brothers abandon him. And this is where Joseph's bones are finally buried. But all along, you know the story of Israel, like 40 years wandering in the wilderness? But imagine that, like you're packing up. We got everything. It's like you got the, you know, you got the, the bread. We got, it. You got some water. You got the children. Did anybody grab Joseph's bones? We got the bones. Where's the bo- You got them? You got the bones, all right? I, you know, I imagine they're taking good care of this and not just like handing each person a bone. Like I imagine it's like... A well-organized system, separate from the food, you know. But as silly as that sounds, can I tell you what this was for Israel? Those bones represented a testimony of faith. And anytime they doubted, is there ever going to be a promised land, they go back to the words that Joseph spoke, and they look at his bones and they go, we have some bones to bury. <laughs> Joseph believed that the end wasn't here. The end was where God promised. You know, today as the church, we have a similar version of this. We don't carry around a coffin with bones reminding us of our future. We have the exact opposite. We have an empty tomb. Not a coffin full of bones. You go go to the empty tomb, you're not going to find any bones there. We have a resurrected Lord. And whenever we get discouraged and we feel like the end is here, we go, God, is this my final destination? We look back on an empty tomb and we remember the future looks a lot different than the present. In Jesus, despite the loss we've experienced, despite the loved ones that have moved on, despite the pain we experience, we look at Jesus. We don't look to ourselves. We don't don't simply look up in some sort of superficial way. We look at an objective event in history where Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again, conquering death to secure the hope we have in resurrection one day, to secure, secure the hope we have of eternal life. We come to a, a, a table, a meal, called the communion table. The Bible says that when we take that meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, it's this testimony of faith. It's this encouragement of hope. And such a beautiful display, again, from the life of Joseph. This is Joseph, again, on his deathbed, giving these special instructions This man of faith, believing God, when the evidence around him maybe contradicted what God had said. Now, I want to kind of pull back for a second and draw our attention to what I think is going to give us some of the most application this morning with Joseph. You know, this is a very similar verse to, like I said, what we studied two weeks ago with Jacob. It's a verse that describes faith that goes all the way. You know, Paul says at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith, you know. That's what we saw in Jacob. That's what we see here in Joseph, that when he's dying, he still has faith. But what I want to draw our attention to with Joseph this morning is what's not seen in this verse, but what this verse is intending to show us. It's really unique, as I mentioned. The entire life of Joseph makes up the second, pretty much the second half of the book of Genesis, And I love how in this verse, it doesn't tell you about the life of Joseph, but it points to the life of Joseph. And here's how. It's like in the way Joseph died by faith, it gives evidence to how he lived by faith. The way that he died by faith, it shows how he lived by faith. And here's my point on this. Joseph dies here with like a mature faith. This is is not like just simple faith, like, yeah, I believe these things. This is real faith, which is faith that's been tested. Do you know what I mean? This is faith that has been through it, real faith. You know, we, we tend to look at faith sometimes as, as faith that just has the most belief in the impossible. But I, I really, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I value faith that is willing to believe God despite seeing the impossible, despite going through hard things. This is someone like, This is someone that you'd want to sit down at their feet and learn from. This is someone that doesn't just have, like, Bible verses to tell you, but they have Bible verses that they've lived on and depended on because of what they've walked through. This is a mature, deep, and confident faith of someone um, who has been developed in the classroom of life, is what we'll say. I want to say that this kind of faith, to believe God in this way, an important feature that this verse is trying to tell us, this is not the kind of faith that you receive overnight. You know, I got that faith. I think I got that faith. This is the kind of faith that gets developed in you over time. Which is sometimes like the catch-22, if I'm using that phrase correctly. I didn't read the book, but everyone says it. I don't know if anyone really knows what it means, but let's say it's a catch-22. let Let's Pretend that we know what we're talking about here. The hard thing, and sometimes the tension with this, with this kind of vision for faith is, I don't know about you, but I find sometimes a discrepancy in my life. I find that I tend to value the faith of people like this. And I consider them heroes of faith. And I, and, I, and I even say things like, God, make me a person of faith like that. You ever pray that? God, give me faith. I think sometimes a good question to ask ourselves in our desire for faith is, and our desire to be like these people of faith is, okay, we, we want their faith, but are we willing Are we willing to go through the kind of things that Joseph went through to become these people of faith? Are we actually willing to lay down on God's table of surgery and say, Lord, here I am in surrender to the faith you want to build into my life? Now, there's often a discrepancy there. I'm much more willing to admire the faith of someone who I'm not willing to you know, walk their, their same road because of how hard that may be. But this is the example of Joseph's life. When you look at his life, I want to say this about Joseph's. uh, You can write this down. This is a key principle from Joseph's life. Joseph's life reminds us that depending on how we navigate our circumstances, every experience that we walk through has the potential to either develop or destroy our faith. This is what Joseph's life testifies to. We could have the faith of Joseph. It depends on whether or not we are willing to allow those experiences to develop or destroy our faith. Notice there's like two things going on here. There's two opportunities. There's two potentials. You're you're going through something right now, and there's a potential for your faith to be developed or destroyed. You know this. I know this. You you know, when, when you really step back and you look at the life of Joseph... For Joseph, it was a vision, ultimately, this is huge in his life, a vision of God's sovereignty over his life. That there was a God in heaven, that everything that he was going through, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it wasn't just happenstance and chance, but there was a God who remained good above it all, who was actually, in some mysterious way, superintending even the broken events of this world. In a sovereign way, to accomplish a good purpose, to even take evil, bad, sad, broken things and use them for good. That, that's the vision of the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph's life. The whole story of Joseph actually ends with Joseph making this statement to his brothers who betrayed him. He said, you meant evil against me. This is the end of his life. But God had a good purpose in mind. Isn't that amazing? This is the vision Joseph had. Of, this is what changed how he navigated his circumstances. This was the deciding factor as to whether or not his faith was destroyed or developed. Do I trust that there's a sovereign, good, and faithful God who's able, listen, who's able to work all things together for good? Who's able to take these hard things I'm going through? Who's able to take everything that I'm going through? Whatever the circumstance may be, God is able to use it for his glory. And in the end, I might not see it immediately, but in the end for my good. I'll go back to that declaration of Joseph's life that that models this perfectly. It reminds us that depending on how we navigate our circumstances, every experience that we walk through has the potential to either develop or destroy our faith. Man, Joseph had some experiences. Joseph went through the full range of the ups and downs of life. This was a guy that came out on the other side of all that life had to throw at him. Still in faith, which is just the amazing thing about him. Joseph's a guy who experiences some of the like the deepest lows. I mean, literally, his story is about going from the deepest pit to the highest platform in the palace. This is a guy that's been to the very top, you know, and then like started from the bottom, and then he was here, but then like shoots and ladders back down to the bottom. I mean, mean, this is life, by the way, ups and downs. Just such an amazing example. Now, time does not permit us even though you know that I'm risky. Time does not permit us to read through the entire story of Joseph's life and and the key events. Um, I would encourage you to read it yourself, starting at Genesis 37. Take some time this week and read through the key events of Joseph's life that formed and developed his faith to make him to be the man that he became of faith. Genesis 37 all the way through 50. What I want to do is kind of what I did for my wife... When we went to go see the whole new trilogy of Star Wars movies that came out years ago when they first came out, the first one. What did I do for Britney? Britney had never seen a single second. Maybe like I Am Your Father. Maybe you saw that. But like, hadn't seen any of the previous Star Wars movies. None of the ones that, you know, the ones that got ruined with the with the ugly judger jo- Binks guy. Like, none of those. Like, she hadn't seen one through six. And so this is like a this is almost like blasphemy against sacred Star Wars. So, but we had no time, okay? I was in a pickle, we had a, we had a show time, we had to make the opening night, and she hadn't, an, I can't watch all six movies with her, we got kids, you know, we have attention you know, deficiencies, so like, so, she watched a 15 minute summary of the entire Star Wars story. Isn't that horrible? I know, I know. We have a vision to finish Lord of the Rings one day. We're on, it's kind of on pause for a second, but um, uh, that, that's unfortunately what, what I had to do. I apologize for those of you who practice the religion of Star Wars. I'm sorry, <laughs> Star Wars fans, forgive me for I've sinned. Um, but th- that's basically how I, I gave her, you know, it was like this fly through. And so let, let, let's do that, okay? Let's, um, let's do the, the 10 to 15 minute YouTube video real quick, if you don't mind. When you look at the life of Joseph, I want to look at, the, just kind of summarize the key events that shaped his faith, and, and maybe some of these different scenes and acts in his life can resonate with some of the stuff you're going through. And my prayer is that these different events in Joseph's life, as they resonate with stuff you've walked through, it can encourage you to see how God may be developing your faith and what you're walking through. There, there's really four main acts, four scenes, four episodes to the life of Joseph's development. If it was on TV, it'd probably be like a Netflix miniseries, you know, four 45-minute episodes. Those are the best, okay? Um, th- that, that seems to be what it is. Here's scene one. Scene one is what you'll see in the book of Genesis, chapter 37. In this episode would be called The Pit. The Pit. This is the, the, the origin story of Joseph takes place in a pit. Um, and this pit place that Joseph's in, it represents the place of abandonment. To be abandoned is to be left alone and cast off and deserted. I'm not sure if you've ever found yourself in a place of abandonment before. We're going to see with Joseph that the abandonment he experienced was at the hands of sinful, envious brothers, but sometimes abandonment does not come through mean, evil people. Sometimes abandonment is just an experience you find yourself in life where you feel alone. Someone you loved is no longer there to depend on as much as It used to be, or maybe you're facing this, like sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we're praying and praying and praying, but the door's not opening. You ever been there? And you can even feel abandoned by God. This This is the first scene of Joseph's life, is abandonment. Maybe you've had that in your life. Someone you love has moved out of your life in some way, or someone has pushed you out of their life. Let's look at the scene. This is the story, history of Jacob. Jacob was 17 years old. This is where his story starts. He was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad, he was a nice little 17-year-old lad, was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. The context of Joseph ending up in this pit is he is the favored son of 12 brothers and 12 sons. And you get maybe a little glimpse... Like, I know this is not like something for a pastor to say, but I don't know if I would like Joseph very much if I was his brother, just to be, to be Um Like, he, he's the favored son, and he kind of tattletales on his brothers. He, he's the one that brings the report. He's like the safety patrol of his family. And uh, make matters worse, verse 3 says that Israel, their dad, loved Joseph more than all of his brothers. He was the son of his old age. He's like the boy of my old age. And he even made him a special... I mean, this is what Joseph is famous for. This guy has like a, a Met Gala coat that he wears around. He made him a tunic of many colors." The favorite son. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peaceably to him. They hated him so much, they didn't have a single peaceable thing to say to him. Now to make matters worse, I mean, that's already bad enough with Joseph's situation, right? Um, you just kind of go, go through the list here. He, brings a, he tells on his brothers, brings a bad report, he's the favorite son, he's got a special Met Gala coat. They, I mean, they hated him just for that, being the favorite son. But then he has some dreams. Maybe it's the way that he told the dreams to his brothers. But uh, verse five says that Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. That's how the story develops. Okay, we already hate you. Now we hate you more. <laughs> now these dreams that Joseph had, they maybe were were they were actually prophetic. We, we see in the end of Joseph's life, the, he had these, these dreams that involved grain and it involved the solar system, basically, all representing how one day his family would bow down to him and he would be lifted up over him. You know, and though this was true, not the thing that you want to hear from the brother you hate. Hey, the Lord spoke to me last night. You're going to bow down to me and be my servant, right? <laughs> and so, of course, they hate him even more. He's speaking the truth nonetheless, and he's simply saying what God spoke to him. And, and so cue the abandonment. They come up with this plan, which is, let's off him. Let, let's kill him. Now, by the mercy of one of the brothers, Reuben, I believe, uh, there was some act of grace. Instead of killing him, let's just abandon him and sell him into slavery so that we don't actually have our brother's blood on our hands. So here, here's what happens. When it came to pass, Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. And then they took him and they cast him into a pit, and this was an empty pit with no water in it. So, like, this is the first scene of Joseph's life. I want to point out that it's, like, right after God speaks a promise to him. Like, a lot of times what we think is, like, God, give me the vision, and then provide the bridge to get there. And sometimes God's like, here's the vision, and here's a pit. It's like, okay, that doesn't kind of add up for me. But this is the first seen in Joseph's life. He, he, he starts his journey of faith forsaken and alone. Deserted in a pit. I'm not sure if life has ever felt like a pit to you. If life has ever made you feel abandoned, if you ever felt like there was no water even in the pit of your life where there's no refreshment. There's just a dry, dark, deep place. And No one's around. I want to promote to you and encourage you and even give you a vision for how God can even develop your faith in a deep, dark pit. I don't know exactly what happened to Joseph's faith in that pit. It doesn't tell us. What we do know is he continues by faith. So there was something there. I want to present to you this option, this opportunity when you're experiencing abandonment that you have an opportunity when you feel alone to learn to know God in a way you never have before. This is the first thing we see of how Joseph's faith is potentially developed. He's left, listen to this, he's left alone with God. He feels like God is not there, but there is, even in the deepest, darkest pit, the presence of God with him. We sang this on the way in with this beautiful song, God, if I even make my bed in hell. Maybe you feel like you've been lying down in life in a place of deep darkness. It feels like hell itself on earth. God, you're there. God, you're with me. And this is an opportunity to know you in a whole new way. Um, I think of Paul. At the end of his life, Paul says something similar. He says, at my first offense, he says, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. Paul raised up all these missionaries, all these disciples, all these Christians. And when the rubber met the road, when, the, when it was the value of decision of, are we going to give our lives for Jesus? or Are we going to hold on to them and forsake Jesus? Paul says, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. This is where Paul is at the end of his life. But notice this confident acclamation. But, I love this, the Lord stood with me. Isn't that awesome? And he strengthened me. Can can I remind you that there is a difference between being lonely and being alone? You might feel lonely. You might feel like you're in this pit of despair, this pit of abandonment. You might feel like you've been forgotten and left for dry. And all might have forsaken you. But can I remind you, the Lord has not forsaken you. He is with you. And in this pit of despair, there's an opportunity in abandonment to know God in a way you never have before. Here's why. Because you're alone with him. Maybe you're alone with God for the first... This is what he's wanted for a while. It's just to know you and you to know him. He's wanted you alone with him, and maybe he's removed something that was keeping you from knowing him the way that he desired. And now you have a chance to know him in a deeper, more intimate way. This is the first scene. The second scene goes from the pit, and somehow it goes from the pit, and if you know the story, it's interesting, it goes to Potiphar's house, where Joseph goes from the place of abandonment to the place of entrapment. Things get, like, they were already mafia, mafioso in that chapter. They get even more sketchy. It goes from the place of abandonment to this place of entrapment. Joseph's in the pit, but his brothers decide we can't just leave him here and kill him. We've got to sell him and get rid of him. We don't want his blood on our, on our hands, so let's just, you know, let's do the moral thing and sell him into slavery. Right? Okay. That was sarcasm. It says, then the Midianite traders passed by, and the brothers pulled Joseph up, and they lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Joseph gets sold into slavery, gets transferred down to Egypt. He's brought to Egypt, and he's sold to the infamous Potiphar or Potiphar or whatever. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. So this is where Joseph ends up. He gets sold to this kind of like royal figure in Egypt. And this is where he is next. I mean, I wonder what that was like. If for a moment he's like, I'm getting lifted out of the pit. Thank you, Lord. Okay, I'm going to, I'm a slave. So this is what's happening in Joseph's journey. So now he finds himself, but I want you to notice this. This is so cool that the Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's house. This is a great vision for all of us in our workplaces. And he was a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did prosper in his hand. This is just God's blessing. Despite it being such a dark season, there's still God's blessing over his, his work. And Joseph found favor in the sight of his master, and he served him. And so then his master makes the slave the overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under Joseph's authority. This is is so interesting. It says, so it was from the time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Wouldn't that be so cool? Like you're in a secular, you might even say like Egyptian workplace right now, okay? Just like pagan, far from God, but what a cool vision for how God would want to bless your workplace on your behalf. Isn't that awesome? He wants to bless you and bring a blessing to everyone around you because you're walking in him and you're living for him. Such a cool vision. Um, it's kind of opposite of what we think. It's like, I just want to work around the Christians. I don't know about you, but it's like, let's just be around. The, it's like, no, go. Like, light needs darkness to be light. And so, so what a great vision. So, so, I mean, just such a cool thing. The master leaves all that he has in Joseph's hand and this is pretty interesting. He didn't know what he had except for the bread with which he ate. Now, Say what you want about Potiphar. Okay, this guy is a delegator, all right? He's like, Joseph, you, another way to say it, I don't worry about anything except the bread in my hand. The only thing I want to be aware of is this bread. I'm trying to get this bread in my mouth, all right? I'm trying to eat it. So like, Joseph, you take care of everything to the point that I don't want to worry about anything except for the moment that I'm in. I mean, just incredible delegation. Now, wouldn't it be nice if that was the end of the story? Too bad. Joseph is handsome. Joseph was handsome in both form and appearance, okay? He's got it all, all right? He's got form, not form without appearance or appearance without form, but both, okay? We'll move on from that verse quickly. And in light of this, that it came to pass after these things that the master's wife with those longing eyes, all sketchy and gnarly and evil, <laughs> cast her longing eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look at Joseph. He's in the situation of entrapment and temptation. His faith is being formed here. Look, my master doesn't know what is, what is with me in the house. He's committed all that he has to my hand. So notice the first thing that Joseph the first thing that Joseph um, thinks about in terms of the temptation he's facing in private when no one else is around is God has entrusted me with too much. God is, I have too much responsibility to make a decision like that. Look at what I've been held responsible with. And that's important to think about. What has God given you? What has he made you responsible with? And how can sin compromise those responsibilities? How can sin squander all those things that God has given you? Joseph says, there is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me, but you. You're the only thing he said, you can't have this. this is the only thing you can't have my wife, because you're his wife. How, and now, I want you to notice, though, though that was a part of the equation of Joseph not giving in to the temptation, it was all the responsibility he had, notice the ultimate heart reason why he didn't give in to the entrapment to sin. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's his vision. That's huge. David says, God, it's against you and you only that I've sinned. It's not that sin doesn't affect people. It's not that we can't sin against people. That's why Jesus says if someone sinned against you, go to them. But ultimately, sin is not something that God is, is absent from. Every sin we commit, whether it's to one of his image bearers or it's, it's a sin that we commit against our own body in sexual immorality or, or whatever else you can fill in the blank with, every sin is ultimately an offense and an affront to a holy and loving and good God. That's the nature of sin. The reason why sin is such a severe thing punishable by death is because it's against God. And this is Joseph's heart. In this moment of temptation, it tells us in verse 10, so it was, as she spoke to Joseph, notice this, day by day. This is not like a one-time event. Every day Joseph shows up for work, he's showing up with a temptation. Day by day, she spoke to Joseph, but he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Like, she, she couldn't get the clue. He was like, no, friend zone, and she didn't want to hear it. But this was a daily temptation that joseph was facing and i want to share about faith in this situation if you ever find yourself i'm sorry when you find yourself in situations of temptation and entrapment to sin i want you to see this is an opportunity not for your faith to be destroyed god doesn't will temptation but god allows temptation to teach us how to love him this is this is the truth of faith from the beginning with adam and eve god cannot be tempted nor does god tempt anyone But the Holy Spirit did lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit will allow you to face situations of entrapment and temptation for the good and the growth of your faith. Here's what God knows with every temptation you and I face. God knows that no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. It's a human thing. And God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. This is what makes God good amidst it all. He's so good in that he never lets something come upon you that is going to set you up for failure and destruction. He empowers you with his spirit, with whatever he walks to, walks through, to take the way of escape. And that's what Joseph did so well. He, he bore the temptation. He took the exit, right? He, he took the way out each and every time. We'll see to the point that he got imprisoned for it. But, but this is what God knows. And so every temptation we face, every situation of entrapment, um, Inasmuch as it's an opportunity and a temptation to sin against God, it's also an opportunity to grow in my love for God. Because the highest form of loving God in Scripture is obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Now, temptation is where we get to do that. James chapter 1 says this, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For what he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Temptation is an opportunity to love God. You're not set up in your temptations to be destroyed. Let me say there are patterns of behavior. There are systems of accountability or the lack thereof that can hinder your love for God, that can keep you from obeying God. But God promises if we take hold of all that he's equipped us with, he won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. And though we find ourselves like Joseph in situations of entrapment, here's Joseph leveling up again in faith as he learns to love God. Scene three, we're coming to the final corner here, is the prison. Now, how does, like, this guy's been places, right? He goes from the pit to Potiphar's house in a situation of entrapment. He's being tempted. He takes the way of escape. And it's interesting, the result of this, there's like one more attempt that Potiphar's wife has on Joseph. Like at first, it's, lie with me, Joseph, lie with me, day to day, Joseph, lie with me. And then there's this verse that reads, like, she has one more, like, all-out attempt, and she's like, lie with me, like she goes at him, okay? And he tries to run, and she, like... Flee sexual immorality. He's like, I'm out of here. I am, I'm a track, I'm a runner, I'm a track star. I'm out of here. And she rips, rips his tunic and now has like his clothing. It's like a movie. Like. And instead of throwing it away or getting it back to him, whatever, she knows now, maybe I'll be found out by my husband. So she kind of turns it around on Joseph and she accuses him. Talk about entrapment. accuses him of sinning against her, of coming on to her. She completely twists it around. And so Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison. It's like, pit, promotion, let's go to jail. A place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So this is where Joseph is. In scene three, he goes to the prison, the place of confinement. He goes from abandonment to entrapment, and now as he's been faithful to God, he's lived godly and he's suffering persecution for it. And he is confined in a prison cell. Um, What's really interesting is no matter where Joseph went, because God was always with him, no matter where you go, God is not with you contingent upon your circumstances. God is with you because you're his. He can't not be with you. He's with you. So he's look at this. He's even with Joseph in the prison and shows him mercy. He gives Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the... This guy... He's got a green thumb. The key is that the saying? You know what I mean, right? He's great. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hands all the prisoners who were in the prison. This guy's just like a human promotion, all right? Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison didn't look into anything that was under Joseph's authority. Delegated again, because the Lord was with him and whatever he did. He made it prosperous. This is where Joseph ends up. He's in prison now. He's in a situation of confinement. Things get real. Like, I'm waiting for Hollywood to make, by the way, the the full motion picture of this story. In prison, it gets better. It came to pass after these things. This is like totally episode three called The Butler and the Baker, all right? (laughs) After these things, Joseph's in prison. He's like, he's a prisoner, but he's like chief prisoner, guard prisoner in charge of all the prisoners, prisoner. And the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, they offended the king, okay? They offended their lord, king of Egypt. Back then, the government would be offended by the truth-speakingness of the people, all right? And Pharaoh was angry. The truth hurts, okay? You offended me. He was angry. And so, he's like, you go to jail, all right? (laughs) Jail right away, all right? Overcooked chicken, right to jail. All right. <laughs> Pharaoh was sorry. Parks are right. Uh, Pharaoh was angry with this officers. so he throws these guys in jail, throws them right in jail. So he puts Joseph, the, the the leader, puts them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard, the prison where Joseph was confined. And Joseph was there with them. He served them, and they were in custody for. A while. So this is what happens. They're like prison mates now. Joseph's in charge, but he's confined with these, these two guys, the butler and the baker, who offended the king. They get thrown into jail. They offended Pharaoh. Now, what's interesting is in prison, these two guys, you know the story? They have bad dreams, okay? They have these dreams that are very mysterious and, and like, just, just out there. Sci-fi almost. Crazy stuff. And they wake up, and they're sad because I've actually been here. I've had a dream, and I'm like, Lord, what does this mean? You ever felt that way? You ever had the Lord speak to you or or put something on your heart or mind in a dream? God does speak to us through dreams. And they, they don't know the interpretation. Well, Joseph has some experience with dreams. And so Joseph gives an interpretation, and when you read the story on your own, you read through Genesis 40, it is amazing. The way that Joseph interprets their two dreams Um, the words that he uses intentionally, it's almost like he doesn't like the baker. He likes, you know, I mean, he's been living with these guys. They're his two mates or jailmates, roommates. And so, you know, after living with someone, he's like, he kind of favors the butler. But nonetheless, he gives them a truthful interpretation. And really, in a nutshell, the interpretation of their dreams is that in three days, the butler was going to be promoted. That the, that, the, that the Pharaoh's going to be like, whatever, I forgive you, come back to your, get over here, I'm not offended anymore, okay, I forgot about it, just don't ever speak the truth again, all right? And then he, then he brings the, and the other prophecy about the, but, uh, about the baker, so the butler's going to get promoted, but the baker, in three days, you're going to be killed. Now, the order of this is kind of funny, because first, first Joseph interprets the dream of the butler, and he says that within three days, here's what your dream means. Pharaoh will lift up your head and, res- this is incredible, and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his, brother, his butler. So the butler's like, oh, good. I'm glad. That's a good dream. And then the baker's like, oh, do me. Do my dream. So I want you to notice the language. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Talking to the butler. Baker turn. Ready? Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head. <laughs> the butler, you're going to get your head lifted up. The baker, your head's gonna, you're going to have it lifted off your body um, from you, and you're going to hang on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. <laughs> is dinner ready? You know, he's like in the prison, you know. So, so this is interesting, and this is, by the way, what happens. Now, the, the one condition that Joseph gave to the butler, who he knew was going to live remember what he told the butler he's there in prison he has one request he's like i'm not you know i'm not like here like some guy on on some like prosperity channel trying to get paid to give you the interpretation all i want from you is just please remember me just please that's all i'm asking i'm in prison i was wrongfully accused you know, and we're kind of making light of some of this stuff because of how heavy it is, but this is how those that are captive, those that are in prison in our, common, in our modern prison system, they can feel this way. If you've ever done prison ministry before, if you know someone that's gone on to spend some time in jail, there, there's a feeling like, I'm forgotten, nobody remembers me. And this is where Joseph's at. Like, that's the one thing he wants is just to be remembered and not forgotten when it's well with this butler. Is there some way that you can make mention of me when you get out to Pharaoh and, and, and put in a good word for me? Like, so his one request, please remember me. The chief butler did not remember him. He has like, you had one job, all right? He gets out and he doesn't remember Joseph, but he forgot Joseph. What's this scene in Joseph's life? Remember, this is the place of confinement. Now, have you ever felt in this place in life, trapped by your circumstances, stuck and forgotten? Stuck and forgotten. Here's Joseph. Stuck and forgotten, and he's looking up to God going, God, I've done everything to honor you. And here I am. It's been two full years after this moment even, and Joseph is still in the place of confinement, stuck and forgotten. we got to speculate that it was in this time of confinement that Joseph learned to trust God. Confinement... Seasons of confinement in life where you are trapped. Maybe you've been at this job longer than you wanted to be, and you're like, I know God's calling me out, but when is the door going to open? Or you've been in this situation so long, and God said, Stay. There just hasn't been the open door, and you're wondering, God, have you forgot about me? Where are you? You feel alone, you feel stuck. It might even be in a pattern of your life, of your spiritual life, where you're just stuck in these vicious cycles and these vicious loops that are just causing you to spiral down, down, and down. And it's like, Where am I? I'm stuck. And Joseph has an opportunity in this place of confinement, like we do as well, to trust God. To trust that even though I feel forgotten, God hasn't forgotten me. And listen, he's up to something. He's up to something. Even though man has forgotten about me, God hasn't. He's up to something. He's doing something in me right now in the waiting room. As I'm learning to wait patiently for him. And he's preparing what he's preparing me for. He's preparing what he's preparing me for. I learned to trust God in seasons of confinement. Psalm 37 says, rest. Right now, if you're like all all thrown around in anxiety because of your season of of confinement, you feel forgotten, here's the call of scripture, rest in the Lord. Rest in him. Come closer to him. Lean on him. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden laden and confined, and I will give you rest. Come to me and wait patiently for me. Trust me. I'm building your trust in the season of waiting. I could give you what you wanted immediately. I could swing the door wide open, but I know what your faith needs more than you do. Trust me. The last scene of Joseph's life is back to the top. He's in the palace. It's the place of achievement. Basically, what goes on to happen, if you remember the story, is that forgetful butler remembers Joseph. Only a whopping two full years later, because Pharaoh has a bad dream, his spirit is troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt, all its wise men, they all show up, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret it for Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's in the same predicament as the butler and the baker. They had a dream, and they don't know what it means. And so it's pretty awesome because the butler goes, wasn't there someone? I feel like I've been where you are, Pharaoh. Uh, Joshua? Joseph? Samsonite? No. It's like he's going through trying to remember who it was, and he, he remembers and so imagine you're Pharaoh, and the butler goes, Pharaoh, I know a guy in prison that can help you. All right, That's what he says. I know a guy. I got a guy. And so Pharaoh's like, go get him. And, and so Joseph stands before him Pharaoh, and he gives this incredible, world-saving, nation-sparing interpretation of the dream that the, the survival of Egypt depended on. In fact, the, local, the, the known world at that time, because there was a great famine coming. And in the dream, God superintending all these events, bringing Joseph there, Joseph interprets that the, the dream is essentially saying that after these seven years of plenty, there's going to be seven years of famine. You've you got, you got to recognize this. There's this whole like, imagery in the dream of like, a fat cow and a skinny cow. It's really uh, interesting. But, but Joseph says to Pharaoh, in light of this, let Pharaoh, here's this, Joseph's counsel, let Pharaoh select, I love this, let him select... I don't know, like a discerning and wise man. And set him over the land of Egypt. You know, I imagine he's kind of like, I know a guy. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce. Let's, this great principle, ancient principle called saving, saving, save one-fifth of the produce of the land in Egypt in the seven years of plenty so that you have some left over. And let them gather all, all the food of those good years that are coming, store it up. So he gives us like, great advice about saving for the days that are coming um, and how the food, he talks about in verse 36, the food can be you know, reserved so that everyone doesn't die. And so the advice is good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh says to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the, I love this, The spirit of the living God, the spirit of God is upon this man. Pharaoh acknowledges the work of God. This is a guy that doesn't even live for God. He's a pagan, God-rebelling king that acknowledges the work of the spirit in Joseph's life. So Pharaoh says to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You're that discerning and wise guy. Therefore, here's his third promotion, You've gone from being over Potiphar's house to over the prison system. You can't go higher than this next promotion except being Pharaoh himself. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand that signified his authority to sign off. He gave him, like he's giving him full power and authority and a promotion, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and he put a gold chain around his neck. That's awesome. Sorry. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had, and they cried out before him, bow the knee, so he set him over all the land of Egypt. I mean, wow. Joseph's back to this place of promotion. And what's so special, and as we close, I'll invite the band to come out, as we looked at Joseph's life, the sovereignty of God in his life. You know, because Joseph had a view of the sovereignty of God, and he understood verses like this, Psalm 76 says that exaltation neither comes from the east nor the west nor from the south. Promotion is not a thing of man, but God is the judge And he puts one down and he exalts another? That God is even sovereign over who your boss is? You're like, no, that's the devil. Trust me. No. God is the judge in who he allows. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And he's the one who puts one up and puts one down. Because... Joseph knew this. His faith learned something in his achievement. It was in his achievement that Joseph learned to see God. Now, the reason why this is so amazing for Joseph is because I think it's the exact opposite for a lot of us. I know for me at times. A lot of times, our achievements can lead us to see more of ourselves. Look what I've done. Maybe you feel that way right now and you've got to repent of that. Like, look what I've done. Wait, wait, wait. I'm not the sovereign Lord of the universe. I'm not the sovereign king of my life. I see God's hand on this. There's a humility in that. The tendency of man is to see less of God and more of ourselves, But there's a blessing in learning to see less of yourself and more of God. God, you're the one. You're the one who rises up. You're the one who puts down. In fact, at the end of Joseph's life, do you remember that declaration when he's standing before his very brothers who he ends up being reconciled with? Just shows Joseph's humility after like this long and drawn out process. He finally unveils himself to his brothers who have to come to Egypt for their survival. And he doesn't use his power in a prideful way to destroy them. But modeling Jesus, he forgives them just like Jesus had the power to take himself off the cross. We know that. All power and authority. Yet meekness, power under control, humility. This was a humble man in power, a humble man in achievement. He forgives his brothers. And he tells them this is the vision that shaped his whole life. Band, you can come out. We'll wrap up here. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. This is his vision. So at the end of Joseph's life, he sees everything that's happened to him the good, the bad, and the ugly. You you have to get here if your faith is going to develop. You have to see all the events of your life bowing their knee to the sovereignty of God. You you cannot see the events of your life in competition with the sovereignty of God. There's got to be this trust that says, God, I don't understand why there's so many highs and lows like this. God, I don't understand why I'm in this dark, deep pit. God, I don't understand why I've been forgotten. God, I don't understand why you're allowing this temptation to show up day after day, but I know that you are faithful, sovereign, and good. And if I believe you, the things that come against me don't have to destroy me. The things that are meant for evil, you can use for good. Now, what is that thing in your life that has just overpowered you? What is that experience that time and time again has caused you to give up in faith and lose heart? And what does it look like in that moment right now to turn your eyes from your circumstances to the sovereign God of the universe? And to say, you work it all for good. You have a purpose even in this. Remember the opening Declaration of Joseph's life, as we reflect on this in our closing, Joseph's life reminds us that depending on how we navigate our circumstances, from temptation to promotion, to confinement and abandonment, depending on how we navigate them, every experience that we walk through has the potential, we'll say it backwards to either destroy our faith or if we recognize the sovereignty of God over it and goodness to develop our faith.